Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. We're currently in our Lent sermon series titled Animating Images. This series is attempting to recapture ancient Christian imagination by engaging the Apostles' Creed. So about the Apostles' Creed, we're not using the creed to explicate faith that must be believed or else. That's often how creeds have been used. Rather, this series is inviting us to ponder creedal statements as icons that rouse imagination and animate our lives by divine love. Now, although this series may not feel very Lent-like, this series is actually following a deeply ancient Lenten tradition. In the early church, the Apostles' Creed was used as a catechism that helped prepare Christians to be baptized on Easter. And so for millennia, people have engaged this creed throughout Lent as a way to more deeply ponder the ways and life of Jesus. Last Sunday, Pastor Ben helped us to imagine God, Father, Almighty, Creator, as a a paternal figure who mightily births us into this world, mightily nourishes and sustains our lives, and mightily invites us into the goodness of co-creative life in this world. This morning, we're going to consider the first of three phrases about Jesus. This first phrase includes these words, Jesus, Christ, only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's a lot to unpack. Jesus, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. In Hebrew, it sounds like Yehoshua. Yehoshua literally means Yahweh, which is the divine name. Yahweh will save. This is what Yehoshua, Joshua, Jesus means. Now, if you're a Jew living in and around the time of Jesus and you hear this name Yehoshua, Joshua, Jesus, your mind immediately goes to the great famous Joshua son of Nun who became the successor of Moses. And as a reminder, after Moses leads Israel out of Egypt through signs and wonders, and after leading Israel in and around the wilderness for 40 years, Moses brings Israel right up to the edge of the land of promise. Moses then ascends the mountain where he goes and departs Israel and passes away, and his successor Joshua leads Israel into the land. If you'd like, you can read all about this in the book of Joshua. But I'll give a brief summary of the book. So spoiler alert if you haven't read Joshua. In the book of Joshua, Joshua, along with all of the tribes of Israel, enter into the land of promise, and through massive, heinous violence, Israel takes up residence in the land. 
Jesus, Joshua, Yehoshua, which means Yahweh will save. And we have an entire book called Joshua that reveals violence as the means to salvation in the land. That's a little background on the name Jesus. Jesus and Christ. In the Greek, Christos. Literally, this word means the anointed one. According to Jewish thought, the anointed one, another word that could be used here interchangeably could be Messiah. According to Jewish thought, the anointed one, the Messiah, is promised by God to bring about peace on earth. How? Well, by reigning, by reigning as God's powerful, mighty, chosen king. Now, similar to the word Jesus that gestures back to Joshua's massive violence, the line of kings in Israel were completely similar. The kings of Israel were warriors who led Israel into battle in order to procure peace through violence. That's just a little background on the name Christ. So Jesus Christ, only Son, our Lord. Only Son, our Lord. I want to tackle these two ideas simultaneously. But to understand this language, we need to familiarize ourselves with the Roman Empire. So who is excited to wake up an hour earlier than normal to talk about history of the Roman Empire? <laughs> yes, good. Somebody's excited about it. It's important. I think it's worth hearing, especially as we're considering Jesus as God's son and as our Lord. The first Caesar, Julius, it was said, had divine origins. Because of this, he was sometimes called the divine Julius. It was as if he was literally a god. And so when Augustus, Julius' son, came after Julius, it's of no surprise that he was considered to have some divinity in his blood. Literally, they would sometimes call him the son of God. So you see, Caesar was not just God, but Caesar was also the son of God. Now, if you grew up in the church, this may be shocking to you that Jesus was not the very first son of God. And this is very important to understanding the Jesus story. But there's more. Caesars were also referred to as saviors. An ancient inscription on Caesar Augustus, so the one who was ruling around the time of Jesus, states, whereas the providence, whereas God, has guided our whole existence and who has shown such care and liberality and who has brought our life to the peak of perfection in giving to us Augustus Caesar, whom God filled with virtue for the welfare of mankind and who, being sent to us and to our descendants as a savior, has put to end war and has set all things in order. And so you see, Caesar, the son of God, was a savior whose job it was to bring about peace on earth. Now, again, if you grew up in the church, this may be shocking. Jesus was not the first savior who is said to bring about peace on earth. This too is very important to understanding the Jesus story. And if all of this is not interesting enough, here's where things get real interesting. The phrase peace through victory was a Roman phrase that described how the Son of God brought about salvation in the world. It took place like this. The greatest military to ever exist would go out into the world and crush crush everyone who is not loyal to Rome. And after new territory had been procured through massive violence, an announcement would be sent out through the empire. Do you know what it was called? Literally, it was called good news, gospel. In the Greek, euagelion, which is the word that we in English get uh, evangelical 
from. Isn't that interesting? And so Caesar, the son of God, is a savior who brings about peace on earth through massive violence and a primary symbol that wrought peace throughout the land in Rome was a cross. You could see the cross everywhere. This, you could say, was Rome's gospel. It was their evangelism. It was their good news. Caesar, the son of God, is a savior who brings about peace on earth through a cross. That's a little background on only son and our Lord. Jesus Christ, only son, our Lord. Okay, so brief summary. Jesus, Yahweh will save through violence. Christ, the anointed king, will rule by might. Only son, our Lord, will establish peace on earth through evangelism that declares victory through crosses, which function to fill the hearts of every human with absolute terror. This was the contextual meaning connected to these words in and around the time of Jesus' life. Which brings me to a couple paintings. We're going to pull those up. The first slide here, please begin by uh, taking in the picture on the left. It's a painting by 17th century Dutch painter Gerbrand van den Eekhoot. Very Dutch. <laughs> it's titled The Nativity. I love the yellow golden hue. The magi and shepherds surrounding Jesus around the fringes, the man kneeling before the infant who sits on Mary's lap. This is a painting of possibility. You could probably say that every child is a painting of possibility. What will they become? What will they do with their lives? I mean, talk about pressure. Jesus has only been born, and he bears the weight of profound titles. Jesus Christ, only son, our Lord. I bet he'll be seven feet tall. I bet he'll crush enemies like Joshua. I bet he'll wield a sword better than King David. I bet he'll pin his enemies to crosses throughout the land like Caesar, and he'll evangelize the world with good news, peace through victory. Those are the expectations around these names and titles that we find in the creed. But Jesus Christ, only son, our Lord, is different than that, isn't he? I mean, just look at this painting on the right. It's by a 15th century Dutch painter named Peter Paul Rubens. I want to call him Peter Paul and Mary. Uh, Peter Paul Rubens, it's titled Christ Crucified. Christ Crucified. Christ Crucified. Now, I know that if you've been in the church for a while, you've heard these words, Christ crucified, before, probably a hundred times, maybe even a thousand times. But in context to the cultural and religious expectations for words like Jesus Christ, only Son, our Lord, well, this painting and the story that it tells is extraordinary. It's countercultural, it's anti religious, and it's wonderfully subversive. This painting and the story that it tells intentionally subverts the notion of Jesus as Yahweh who will save through violence. This painting and the story that it tells intentionally subverts the notion of Christ as the anointed king who's going to come and rule by might. This painting and the story that it tells intentionally subverts the notion of the only son, our Lord, who will establish peace on earth through evangelism that declares victory through crosses which fill the hearts of humans with terror. 
despite all of the cultural and religious expectations for Jesus Christ, only Son, our Lord, we must look hard and hold deeply this revolutionary painting of Christ crucified. You see, this Jesus Christ, only Son, our Lord, declares, let the violence and the might and the victory through crosses stop with me. This Jesus Christ, only Son, our Lord, declares, let us do away with violence and fear of punishment as strategies for bringing about peace on earth. For, for this Jesus Christ, only Son, our Lord, invites, come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And again and again and again, this Jesus Christ, only Son, our Lord, invites, come, come and follow after me. And two more ideas for us to consider. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We'll begin with conceived by the Holy Spirit. This idea comes from Luke chapter 1, verse 35, where we read, The angel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. Central to the angel's declaration is the phrase, The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. About this phrase, many theologians point out that this language harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, where we read these words. In the, beginning God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Theologian Benjamin Myers explains, Creation occurs when the Spirit of God broods over the formless abyss and brings forth life out of nothing. Elsewhere, the Hebrew scripture writers speak of the divine breath or spirit as the source of creation. When God forms Adam from the ground, the man is at first a lifeless clay sculpture, but, but then God breathes spirit into the clay and it becomes a living being. So, writes Myers, when the spirit broods over the womb of Mary, we see a picture of God's creative work happening all over again. Jesus is brought up into being by the creative breath of God's Spirit. I love this connection that's being made between the Holy Spirit and the creation account and, and the pregnant Mary. Which brings me to two more paintings. On the left is a painting by 19th century Armenian painter Ivan Avazovsky. It's titled, And the Spirit of God Moved on the Face of the Waters. Isn't it stunning? You have the formlessness, the nothingness being overshadowed by the Spirit of God, which is hovering over the foreboding waters, arms open. Just You can almost feel as though the Spirit is just dreaming about the life that the Spirit is going to bring forth in this world. And then similarly on the right is a painting by 18th century Italian painter Francesco de Mira titled The Annunciation. Similar shades and colors, the Holy Spirit is hovering over Mary's life, dreaming about Jesus, Christ, only Son, our Lord, who will subvert all expectations for messiahs and kings and Caesars and crosses and fear with his very own life. 
And Mary, as many of us know, famously declares, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Born of the Virgin Mary. As people of the Enlightenment, we could spend years wondering how this happened. We could debate its possibility and its probability and its impossibility, and we could spend the rest of our lives hoping for empirical knowledge that that proves, that absolutely proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. But you see, proving the virgin birth isn't an ancient concern. It's a modern, western, scientific concern, which causes us to miss the meaning of this particular line in the creed. And this is kind of like finding a bicycle chain without ever seeing a bicycle. I mean, just imagine, you've never seen a bicycle, you've never seen a motorcycle, you've never seen anything that uses a chain, and you're just walking down a path in the forest, and there before you is a bicycle chain. You pick it up, uh, you find this dark metal circular thing that gets your hands greasy, and you wonder, is this thing a weapon? Is this a tool? Is this a piece of jewelry? What, what is this thing that I hold in my hand? Of course, to understand a bicycle chain, you have to see it in its proper context, which is to say you need to see an actual bike to understand the purpose and meaning of a chain. Similarly, Mary's virgin birth is not a bicycle chain in isolation. It's part of a greater context. And what is that context? Well, we could call this, theologians call this miraculous birth stories. That's what this is a part of. In Genesis, Abraham and Sarah are old, real old, like super old, too old to have a child when they're visited by an angel and the angel says to them, you will have a child. They laugh, they can't believe it's going to happen, but it does. That's a special birth story. And Isaac in the scriptures is special. In Exodus, the baby Moses is placed into a basket and sent drifting alone by himself down a river where he's found and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses grows up as a Jew in Pharaoh's house. That's a special birth story, and Moses is certainly special. In Judges, a woman is barren, but an angel visits her, kind of like Abraham and Sarah, and says, although you are barren, having born no children, you shall conceive and bear a son. Nine months later, the great Samson is born. That's a special story. And Samson is a special person. One more example. In Samuel, Hannah is full of grief and weeping at Shiloh when she's told, you will have a son. And nine months later, the great prophet Samuel is born. See, that's a special birth story, and Samuel is certainly special. Do you see what's happening here? Israel's story is from the very beginning stuffed full of miraculous births. And these miraculous births have a point, which is this child that's about to be born is special. This child about to be born is chosen to do great things. This this child that is about to be born may change the world as we know it. Keep your eye on this child. Watch this child, for great things are possible in this child. That's the point. Can we flip back to the first slide? Miraculous births have a point. And this painting on the left says it all. 
This child on Mary's lap, surrounded by diverse humans full of hope, bears the weight of immense possibility. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Yes, of course. It can and should be nothing less than miraculous. But as we clearly see in the painting on the right, unlike Isaac and Moses and Samson and Samuel, this miracle child grows to declare, let the violence and the might and the victory through crosses stop with me. And unlike Isaac and Moses and Samson and Samuel, this miracle child grows to declare, let us do away with violence and fear of punishment as strategies for bringing about peace on earth. And so, we, or just speaking for myself, I'll say I, I declare with joy and honest conviction, Jesus Christ, only Son, my Lord, conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Because if life and religion have taught us anything, it's that more violence and more fear do not produce good fruit. What we need is a new way of being, a new way of seeing, a new kind of king, inaugurating a new kind of kingdom that rouses peace through love. Here and now, always now. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, God's only son, who many of us choose to call Lord, who's conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, lead us into your way of love, that life may be made manifest and celebrated by all. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.